0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. A special welcome to anybody who's in the space here in Minneapolis for the first time or online for the first time. Thanks for joining in to our weekly practice group. That The Sunday morning group probably has been going on for a long time now since 2009 maybe so yeah really great to be here next week i'll just mention um i'll be leading a retreat at common grounds retreat center so i won't be here but shelly Graf, the other guiding teacher will be here and we'll have a potluck for anybody who wants to stay right after this program um so feel free to bring some food for that if you'd like to join in Um, but you don't feel like you have to stay for the potluck if you don't want to And that doesn't include those online. (laughs) We haven't figured that one out yet. (laughs) So we've been uh, looking, some of you know, at this um, really deep and important teaching in the Buddhist tradition on the three characteristics. So normally what we experience is our interpretation of what's going on. I mean, it's not like we don't see sights or hear sounds or feel sensation but very quickly we're in our interpretation of our bare direct sense experience the mind the perceiving mind very quickly in a sense you know recognizes but in that process of recognizing what i'm seeing what i'm hearing what i'm thinking what i'm touching it very quickly has an interpretation a concept a story About what's happening to me or what I'm experiencing and that's mostly what we're knowing as we go through the day we're knowing our interpretation and then the more we train our mind in the way the Buddha suggests like to be present then we'll still notice our interpretation that's not going to go away perception is a very natural and ongoing part of what our mind does so it's not a problem we don't have to demonize the fact that we are always perceiving, always making stuff up. You know, I see somebody and we have some impression of who that is. But that's not direct. That's, you know, our past conditioning, informing, interacting with the immediacy of the sense experience. And out of that comes some interpretation, some story. But if we train in being interested in the present moment, we're going to have more of the direct, immediate seeing of shape color form hearing the pitch and sound you know the particular texture of the sound and the particular specific uh, sensations or characteristics of you know the hardness the smoothness the warmth the coolness the roughness of touch wherever we're touching you know even the air touching the skin we'll notice that that like if i'm feeling some touch from the movement of air or the warmth of that movement that's different than my perception oh it's warm in here or the ceiling fans must be on like that thought that's its own experience but the touch isn't dependent on the concept my skin is being touched by air right we can know touching or the warmth of that air or the coolness of that air without language without any concept, we can know the experience of touch. Just like we can see shape, form, whatever that we're seeing right now, if your eyes are open and working, we can see, we can notice a difference between like the scene of the color of the paint of the wall I'm looking at and my idea that's some off-white ivory color. They're they're two different phenomena. That thought, that color is some kind of off-white color, And the direct seeing, they're two different experiences. And that's the level that we call specific, you know, for lack of a better way, the specific characteristics of our sense experience. So non-conceptual. And then there's a further deepening that arises naturally, organically, when we're hanging out more and more in the immediacy of the specific characteristics of what's going on, Through the six sense gates of hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, seeing, and thinking is the third or the sixth sense gate, right? So these are the ways that experience touches the sensitive heart. We're sensitive to thought, just like we're sensitive to sight and sound and smell and taste and touch. And in a sense, those ongoing movements of thought, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, is making contact with the sensitivity we call the mind or the heart. Because right? that's sort of the characteristic of the heart or the mind is that it's sensitive to what's moving through these six sense gates. six sixth ways for sensitive, And we're learning to kind of be at the immediacy of that truth. So it's not about getting this as an idea, but using the idea to inspire the mind to be interested in this immediacy. Because then it reveals the sort of unmistakable characteristic that everything's changing, everything's moving. There is never anything fixed in our conditioned experience sound is moving sight is moving thought touch smell and taste all of it is just moving 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 moving. it's never a thing the sight i'm seeing the sound i'm hearing the touch i'm feeling the thought i'm thinking it's never a fixed thing although we imagine that it is but that's just the illusory nature of thought creates can create what appears to be something that's fixed or permanent. Including the idea of me has that appearance, like I feel like I'm really something in a substantial way that I was yesterday, that I'm going to be tomorrow. But that's just because language is deceptive in that way. When I say mark, me, this guy over here, it lends a sense, a superficial appearance of like it's a static entity, edifice, me. But it's when we actually cultivate present moment awareness of whatever we think refers to me, we see its flow, it's moving, it's changing, it isn't, there's nothing there ever that is seen as fixed. And that's that first characteristic that we talked about as anicca is the word, the Pali word, impermanence, the uncertain, uncertain, unreliable, unfixed, changing nature of everything that's conditioned. And then the next specific character, or uh, universal characteristic is the unsatisfactory nature. And it's related to the anicca. Because things are ultimately always forever fluid, then sense experience, conditioned reality will never be satisfying because from this ordinary egoic level, I'm looking for something fixed that I can count on. Like even my opinion being right or being here or being me, right? I'm not interested in a fluid me. I'm interested in like me being me. (laughs) that I can count on. Like, oh, no, no, it's still me. There's a funny character in uh, in Sufism, which is a kind of mystical uh, aspect of Islam. Some of you might know about it. Fam- made famous in part because a couple of the poets like Havis and Rumi from the around the 13th, 13th century become very well-known in the West. Um, but there's a Kind of a wild wisdom character in Sufism, Nasiruddin, and uh, I don't know if people know if he was a real person or just a, sort of a story that you know, was used to make to teach some of the aspects of the spiritual <coughs> mystical tradition of Sufism and Islam. But there was a one of the stories is like uh, forget he's like goes to some bank or his lender and. You know, the person says, well, can you identify yourself? And he pulls out a little mirror and he says, yeah, it's me. (laughs) You know, because it's like, it's so compelling. This is me. Same person. That was, it's always the same person. But what's always the same is that habit of imputing a permanence to, it's okay to call whatever this movement is it's okay to call it me there's nothing inherently wrong with that sound me or mine or you know mark or whatever labels we put on but what we want to understand is that it's not a fixed entity it's what it is it's what it always has been which is flow movement and unnatural unfolding and so the next characteristic of of unsatisfactoriness is it's just an affront to our wrong idea of a fixed self, that we can't find something solid, permanent. So there's always that dis-ease, that existential uneasiness, because what we imagine is here can't find what what we imagine is here wants, which is permanent, right? Because whatever appears to be permanent, then it's dependent on permanence. It's existentially dependent on permanence because its whole being is around being permanent. So I want permanent possessions and permanent relationships and permanent attributes of who I am. I want things to be tied down and solid and real in that permanent sense. And because we never find that, there's always an uneasiness, there's always a disturbance in our heart because we're operating with a wrong idea of permanence in a world that is flow. And there's a dissonance between our operating view, what in Buddhism we call wrong view, or self-view, self-centered view, and just the natural way of things. And then the third underlying characteristic I've been talking about the last few weeks, I'll miss next week, but I'll come back, that Uh, next week in April, that last week, I guess it would be in April, and we'll continue for at least one or two more weeks after today, looking at this third characteristic, which is anatta, is the Pali word, not self or the impersonal nature, that what we find whenever we're looking and opening to our subjective experience is we find movement, we find that wrong view, that established way of me organizing my experience, what we call self-view, self-centered view, is always uneasy, which is dukkha, right? Because my underlying view, the view that got conditioned into the mind through culture and upbringings and it's always out of alignment with the way it is. And so there's a dissonance. And so we call it, we have a word for that, dukkha. It's unsatisfactory, everything, even really nice experience. Like uh, maybe some of you saw Ramesh Sairam and I are gonna lead a retreat at our retreat center starting on Thursday, long weekend retreat. I'd still room on the Zoom version, but I think it's maybe a short waiting list for the in-person if you have next weekend free. Thursday night to Sunday noon. But the theme that we're going to inquire during this four-day retreat is the, it's called uh, Viparanama Dukkha. So it's the Dukkha that's related to change. And so even when we have a nice experience on some level, even if it's mostly unconscious, the mind knows I can't count on this. Like it's kind of warm today. Here in Minnesota, at least, and uh, but we know we can't count on it. You know, those of us who have lived through enough Aprils, we know <laughs> there'll be a little bit more. Don't say it out loud. <laughs> I know, because we've had a long winter, and but we're going to have evidently a string of warmer days, and then that will last until it doesn't last, and then we'll have whatever's going to be next, and or we're healthy now, but like with the five remembrance remembrances that we chanted at the beginning we're trying to remember oh but this won't always be so or we might have some good things happening in our lives and we don't want to deny that we really want to taste that feel the good stuff when it happens when it shows up but we don't want to be confused by the good stuff thinking that it's mine in a permanent way it's not mine good stuff happens like health or good friendship or success in life or whatever it happens when the conditions are there for it but nobody not one of us is in charge of all those conditions so when they shift around then whatever might be pleasing to us it might shift around too and then it will be different it will be other than the way it is right now and that movement happiness that kind of ordinary level of happiness and unhappiness it's not personal But the very deep habit coming out of our self-centered views of things is to interpret our happiness and unhappiness as being personal. So when things are going well and we feel happy because things are going well, that happiness, which is real, I mean, on that ordinary sense, it's real. It's an experience being known, but we wrongly interpret it as my happiness. No, it's just pleasant right now because Conditions are this way, the way that this mind has learned to like things. And then when things are really unpleasant, we think that that unhappiness is happening to me. It feels like impactful because it's me that's unhappy. And we feel, sense that my unhappiness has a kind of substance that it doesn't have. And even we can break it down even more that feeling, the underlying feeling tone of pain, or the underlying feeling tone of pleasure, even ordinary pain, like in your knee now, or some ache in your back, it just feels like that unpleasantness really belongs to me. And it's so interesting, like in our Buddhist practice, to learn to be intimate with the pain and the pleasure that comes our way, but to look at it with new eyes. It's a movement of an unpleasant feeling. And that it's unpleasant, it's unpleasant, but it's always in it's always motion. And at some moment, it's going to cease. It won't be unpleasant anymore. And it will be something else, neutral, pleasant, whatever. But it keeps changing everything. The pleasure, or pain, of our sound, whatever we're hearing right now, or the sight, whatever we're seeing, the sensations, or the quality of our thoughts, if they're pleasant or unpleasant, Those are like rivers, too. So the underlying feeling tone of pleasure and pain, and neutrality even, that's always in motion. There's something deeply impersonal about feeling tone. It's moving, and it's moving in an impersonal way. So when the conditions align and it's really pleasant, and, wh- and then in a superficial way, we say, I'm happy, which is totally fine to say to a friend, yeah, I'm feeling happy. I mean, you could tag on because right now, conditions are showing up in my life in a way that are pleasant. So that's what I mean by saying I'm happy. But I understand it's a movement. It hasn't, the movement hasn't ended. It's still in motion. And it's always becoming otherwise. And maybe it's getting even nicer. So the happiness is intensified, or maybe it's diminishing. So already I'm experiencing the unhappiness of happiness beginning to change. Happiness going away. I mean, even in that kind of gross sense of appreciating the life we have, well, it's just a ticking, ticking, ticking. We're already losing the life we have. As soon as you're born, we're losing the life we have. And we don't even know how it's going to play out for us. You know when, how, sickness, aging, and death is going to happen, but we know it will in its own way, according to so many causes and conditions that are very impersonal. We didn't sign up for or choose our genetic conditioning that we have, and the cultural conditioning where the location you know we were born into, the kind of conditioning that came with that. Kind of privilege or oppressiveness that came with our particular cultural conditioning. All that is just the way that it is and we shouldn't be oblivious. It's really useful to be clear about all of that so that we can participate knowing how, whether you use the word arbitrary or impersonal, it is. Because isn't it true like for someone who's relatively privileged like myself, You know, it's just so easy, unconsciously, because it's built in to the fixed views that I got conditioned with. And maybe you'll recognize this for yourself. It's like it's somehow built in that I'm deserving of whatever privilege has come my way. Oh yeah, that money in the bank. You know, the money that I saved. That's my money. Deservingly, I put it in the bank. You know, so. And not to see that the capacity to sort of save money was part of innumerable causes and conditions that had nothing to do with me or whatever me is. And even like if, even if I'm uniquely competent or uniquely thrifty or something like that, that's not even me either. Like it's not like that's me that somehow got conditioned in through this impersonal conditioning process. So whether it's due to sort of cultural privilege, or some unique, specific personality characteristics. None of it's personal. It's just the way it is. And that doesn't mean that, you know, as we interact together and organize in communities that we don't use ideas of responsibility. It just means that we understand that although we assign responsibility, you said this to me you did this to me we understand that the person that did it to me is this impersonal unfolding and that as a way of organizing ourselves a community we say you're responsible for your actions seems to work better than the opposite which is saying you're not responsible but even when we say you're responsible we should understand that there isn't really somebody who's responsible but it's useful for us to take responsibility for our location, even though we're not responsible for it. Because that's how we harmonize together. We take responsibility. You know, and, and you know, one thing that's really ripe these days is like as a white person, it's like we I don't really want to take responsibility for what comes from being a white male, you know, white straight male in, in culture because there are some responsibilities that I'd like not to have. <laughs> but even that, it's not even that, oh, I should take responsibility. It's like, how does it feel, how does it work for me not taking responsibility? Does that actually work to not take responsibility? Or how does it feel, how does it work? to begin to take more responsibility for each of us. I mean, it's not just unique to white, older, straight men, right? It's all of us taking responsibility. That's how we harmonize. It's just like we did in a more simple way with our body earlier during the guided set. You know, we could have approached it with a fixed view that this pain is mine, these bodily sensations are mine, and I don't like them, or I do like them, I do deserve them, I don't deserve them. We could approach it with a fixed view, or we could have this more organic, naturalistic approach where there are these sensations moving right now, the physicality of the body, just in that ordinary, immediate sense. And it just makes sense to take responsibility It is like this now, this is what's here to be felt right now. So the only relevant question is to open, to be vulnerable, to be intimate. Because the body, it isn't like what I'm feeling in my body is fair. Nobody is saying that it's fair or that you or I deserve the bodily sensations we have right now, like some people in the room Online, you might have real chronic pain in your body for whatever reasons. Even being old, you know, comes with the territory of being old. It's just painful sensations of stiffness and aching, you know, of arthritis and other conditions that come with the aging process or illness. And it's not personal, but it's helpful to take responsibility like, well, this is how it is. And these sensations are moving. And I'm not in the, you know, the impersonal nature, the anatta, the not-self, we're not trying to, you know, uh, make a compelling argument that everything is empty of self as some philosophical truth. It's really more pragmatic than that. Like relating to my experience as if it's empty of this fixed sense of me how does that work for me does that loosen things up does the heart become more free and spacious and nimble and more skillfully able to relate and when I take things personally when I take my bodily sensations personally or my negative thoughts my heavy mood when we take that personally how does that work for us does it become an added weight that I think my heavy mood is me, as opposed to, oh, the mood is heavy right now, it's really unpleasant, and it's in motion, and any clinging, any identification, taking it personally, just amplifies, it adds a whole other level of weight, psychic weight, which we don't have to add. We still have to deal with the fact that this is a heavy mood or painful sensations or a difficult circumstance that we're facing at home with our family or with our friendship or at work but we don't have to impute this personal nature to what's pleasant or unpleasant and that's really the practice that we're working with now this impersonal nature is we're really appreciating The power. So we get it as some information from the Buddha. Sometimes in Buddhism, we call it a pointing out instruction, right? It's like borrowing some insights and wisdom from somebody, like a teacher who says, Hey, you might want to check out, you know, in your first, get to know your habit of always imputing person, personal nature to everything that's happening to you and in particular around pleasure and pain happiness and unhappiness we just reflexively and we're, we we really go you know we'll defend this deeply because we're so convinced that pain is bad and pleasure is good to me and that happiness when it arises for me it's it's my happiness and i must deserve it and our unhappiness in a funny way, we say it's mine, we may blame somebody for it, but yeah, they gave it to me, they made it happen to me, or, no, I'm just bad, or I'm just stupid, so I deserve this, or I have it because society's screwing me, or this person is screwing me, and so I have it, but now I have it. Right? It's, it's a real retraining of our mind to actually be more intimate with happiness and unhappiness, more clearly aware of pain and pleasure so that we can see it for what it is. Actually, it's not like we're trying to project, oh, this is impersonal. We're wondering, we're taking the pointing out instructions and we're seeing, is it impersonal? When I get really up close and personal, or up close and intimate with uh, pain or pleasure or happiness or unhappiness, what do I discover about that? And that's her homework, you know, to really get intimate about that. That's, I I might have mentioned this last week, but there are 12 insights that are part of the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths. It's just one of the many maps the Buddha used that describes the awakening process. So I'll just go through them quickly in the last five minutes. So there is, you know, we're just a bumbling human being, but we get curious in life, which is really the beginning of having a spiritual life, is we're curious. We're not so overwhelmed that we can't be curious, like, what the hell's going on? You know, And why does it, in moments at least, hurt so much being human? So we start to pay attention. Oh, this heart is heavy. There's dukkha. There's something that's out of balance or ill at ease, and it's right here in the mind, in the heart, right here. Oh. This is relevant. So there is Dukkha. It's relevant. It should be understood. It has been understood. These are the three first three insights with this particular Buddhist map that we got from the Buddha. There is Dukkha, like just being honest to yourself. There is something off. There is some seemingly pervasive dissatisfaction, even when things are going well for me. Is that? We're not thinking of it th- theoretically. It's like right here, subjectively, in our experience. It's like, like uh, we have a really powerful depiction in early Buddhism called the hungry ghost. And uh, it's like a symbol of this uneasiness. And it's a, a being that has a huge appetite. So they're depicted as having a huge belly. That the mouth the size of a pinhole. So they can never appease their hunger. And they're called a hungry ghost, always. And that, that's depicting us, in moments at least in our lives, where we can't, you know, we we had something salty, and now I'm going to have something sweet, and now I need something liquid, and now I need some more of that crunchy, salty stuff, and now something silky and smooth, and yeah, it never ends, right? And now I'm so exhausted from all that, I need to rest, go into oblivion, I seek that, and then now I gotta do something exciting, so I'm gonna drink a bunch of caffeine, and get revved up, and do something, You know, listen to the news, because it will evoke intensity in me, and then I'll you know, do life, and on and on like that. So, um, yeah, we get these, this sort of addiction and so the the process of uh, opening to these three characteristics of change, of dukkha, of the impersonal nature, we're really seeing that, yeah, there is this dukkha, and it's lawful. That begins the second set of insights. There is a cause. Like, how dukkha is showing up for me, subjectively, in my experience, it's lawful. There's a cause. This cause should be Understood, it and should be let go of, and it has been let go of. These are the next three insights. And that causes, and this is what I talked about last week, and you can go back and listen if you weren't here, because um, all of the talks, by the way, they exist um, in audio form on the, uh, what is it called, dharmacy.org website. You can just search by Come Meditation Center or by my name, Mark Nunberg, and you'll get the previous week's talks Or you can watch on our YouTube channel. All that is available. Both are for free. You could just listen anytime. And, uh, last week I talked about how the cause for suffering is this attachment to desire. It's, desire is real, right? I mean, obviously that's good to know, right? (laughs) Oh, the Buddha's not saying desire is not real. No, desire is real. That's good, because that aligns with our, I think, your subjective experience, certainly mine. I see desire all the time. Desire is real, but it's not personal. That's our pointing out instruction. Well, there it is. And interestingly, I'm always personalizing desire. So attachment attachment to desire is always there when we're hurting, when there's that squeeze, that agitation, that upsetness. And you can correlate this for yourself. Is that true for you? That whenever you're hurting... Whenever your heart feels bound up or tight or heavy, there's some attachment to a desire. The desire to have some experience, the desire to become somebody, the desire to get rid of something, to have something end. Those are how the Buddha talked about craving. Craving is the word we use when there's desire, which is natural, and attachment and identification with desire. Then there's going to be a sense of a somebody who's hurting. So the practice is to know there's a cause and to knows that, know that that attachment to desire is extra. It should be abandoned, which is different than you as a person trying to abandon the attachment to desire. That won't work. And it's endlessly frustrating. I know I'm attached. I know I should be attached. I should stop being attached. Has that ever worked? No. Because we're approaching the attachment to desire from the self-view point of view. And we're basically, self is that clinging. That's what self-view. So we're saying, clinging is saying to clinging, don't cling. It doesn't work. We just cling to the idea that I shouldn't cling. So it's neurotic in that way. And we can learn this. We're going to do this, so we should learn from when we do that, when we cling to not wanting to cling to desire. Right? We get identified with the idea that I shouldn't be attached. This person doesn't like me. I really like them. I'm really attracted to them. but They don't seem to be into me. I shouldn't be attached to that. You know, I shouldn't hurt Well, no, you hurt. It hurts. But that hurt is just what it is. We don't have to try to pretend that it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. We're just not selfing around the hurt. We're not interpreting the hurt of not being liked when we want someone to like us. We're not interpreting it as me or mine that hurt. Oh, yeah, that's what happens. It hurts. Sometimes life hurts. Sometimes life is pleasant. Neither of those are personal. It's just the endless unfolding, you could say, of life, but just to be more specific, the endless unfolding of happiness and unhappiness. There's a very potent potent quote from Ajahn Chah, who's an important teacher in our lineage. He's, uh, he died in the 90s, um, famous um, Thai meditation monk, meditation teacher and Buddhist monk. And uh, he has this very powerful teaching where he just says, outside of suffering and its cessation, there's nothing. Like, in a way, that's our practice. As we live our life, do ordinary stuff, raise kids, go to work, fall in love, fall out of love, get old. But as we're doing that, The filter, the way we relate to it all is suffering and non-suffering. So when there's suffering, there's attachment to desire. And when there's no suffering, there's no attachment to desire. And just keep whatever it is. You're having a wonderful interaction with your kids. It's really pleasant. You want it to last. You get identified with the wanting to last. This has to last or whatever intimacy and wonderful love that's flowing and like even as they become teenagers or even as they become young adults or it's got to continue in some fashion well how does that work for us that becoming the one who needs the love to last to be the same as it is right now how does that work it becomes immediately right then and there heavy it's suffering but we could have that same experience of some really... And, you know, you could just, if you don't have kids, it could be with some good friends or your lover or whatever, siblings, but you're just having a really nice time with some other folks, packed even, right, it's just beautiful. But the mind isn't adding that somebody who wants this wonderful thing to last. It's just something wonderful. And like everything, always it's ephemeral, it's always in the process of changing. It might be becoming more wonderful or less wonderful, but it's always forever unfolding. And we can harmonize with that. And so in that way, they're not really different characteristics, the impersonal nature, the unsatisfactory nature, and the changing nature. They're just different aspects, expressions of what wise view which is really just aligning with the way it is. Wise view, the definition of wise view is the absence of self-view. Of a self-view, which also implies a fixed view. Because the self wants something fixed. That's how we can recognize that habit. That's all self-view is. It's not you. It's just a habit, a conditioned habit. It's also impersonal, self-view is. And it's also impermanent. Like, if you're gonna continue with your self-view, you have to renew it moment by moment. Because self-view, being self-centered, it only lasts for a moment. And then you gotta renew it in the next moment, taking things personally. Just because you took things personally a previous moment, it's not gonna continue. Because that's how, that's really the nature of things. If we're gonna remain ignorant, we gotta keep renewing that ignorance. (sighs) So this is this really supports uh, a kind of faith that, because it appears that ignorance is so thick and deep, and but this truth that it has to be renewed gives us hope. Oh yeah, it's just a matter of letting ignorance cease. Wrong view will cease, and then we recognize that it ceased. So like there you are, you're in that whatever that nice situation is and you're, you, there is self-view, like you want this to last, it's so nice, it feels so healing, I really, it would be so great if this would last. And then you notice you're attached, right? Because you, you practice it, so then there's a moment of awareness, oh, I'm really attached. And then try to let there be the next moment be, oh, I wonder if this attachment is impermanent. So you're not trying to make it go away, the attachment. You're observing that you there's a really pleasant thing going on. You're really attached to it continuing. You feel the tension or the weight of that attachment. You you have that wisdom that wonders, is this attachment me permanent or is it impermanent and not, and impersonal? And then if you hang out there long enough, you will see the attachment cease. And the same situation is there, you're having a wonderful time with your friend or whatever, but now there's no clinging. And then you'll get excited and you'll cling (laughs) to the freedom. But that's okay, because then you'll notice, oh, look at, just like the Buddha says, when there's attachment to desire, it hurts. Wanting to be an awakened person that doesn't cling isn't freedom. It's uh, just another form of suffering. And then you can observe that attachment to non-clinging. And then it will cease too. And in this way, freedom, awakening, always has kind of a cool flavor to it. Because it's always about what's not there. It's not about what is there. Oh, Mark has freedom. Mark has awakening. Mark has nibbana or something like that. It's always about what's not there. Something has ceased. That's what's so provocative, like even the word nirvana, you know, nirvana in Sanskrit, and nirvana in, in Pali language, um, it means a fire going out. That's, it's It was a common word, you know, back then, 2,600 years ago, and it's just something goes out, something's shed or abandoned, and that's the cessation of wrong view, which is the attachment to desire which makes it craving or clinging. So we'll leave it here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.